1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: hello everyone and welcome to histories of the unexpected the show where we demonstrate that everything simply everything in the whole world has its own history like
1: pizza randomness and prizes oh i love the idea of Random prize pizzas, Sam. I think that would be, make a superb episode. However... It would be like would have anchovies and artichokes. Yes, and exactly. And hat stands. <laughs> you know, just completely random. Anyway, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining, explaining very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of unfairness is in fact all about the Chartist. Well, you would know had you listened to our recent homeschooling episode on that very topic. Or that the history of benches is in fact all about status in ancient Rome.
2: I love doing the Romans ones. They're, they're particularly good fun. Uh, uh, you know, the kiss, it's all about belonging and family. That's another one for you. I,
1: I think if I were to reinvent myself as a different kind of historian, it would probably be an ancient historian. Or 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 rather, and not an ancient historian, because that ages me somewhat, but a, a historian of ancient Rome. Mm. I think I, I'd love to do that. Get delving into the archaeology and the classical texts and the material culture.
2: fantastic. Wonderful stuff. Well, guys, um, he's been chatting away. The man, the man doing that chatting, he's not opposite me because we're the other end of town. But he will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hi,
1: James. Hello, Sam, and the man who is not sitting opposite me, alas. Um, We haven't been together for a very long time now, but he is down the ether at the other end of the internet across town in his shed. It is the famous historical adventurer, the truly wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Hello,
0: Sam.
2: Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Now, this is another episode in our special series, Homeschooling. Homeschooling series. We're really enjoying it. Um, And the idea is each episode we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. And we prove that it does. And today's really good fun. James is wanting to be doing this for ages, ever since we came up with the idea, I think. You said we must do the history of big heads. And we can do that in relation to Henry VIII, um, which is a, a cracking example. But before we talk about how Henry VIII was the most wonderful example, of a big head um we can talk about how we might think about this through history
1: well how do you start defining a big head i mean it's it's all about arrogance it's about confidence in oneself isn't it and you can think about that in terms of in terms of particular individuals in the past where they have this sort of sense of self belief and is being a big head like basically taking things too far and you're so self important you're so wrapped up in your own sense of self and entitlement and power, that you, you know, you, you disregard other people. You want it your way completely, which can get us to thinking about a whole range of different leaders, can't it, in the past?
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this and Napoleon was the one who, who, who came to mind first. This is a, a soldier from Corsica, who uh, manages to plot his way in with great military success and ends up um, moving into the 230-year-old royal palace of the Tuileries, which had once been home to five generations of French monarchs. So, um, this, this little soldier from Corsica, he's he's in the same same bedroom as Henry the Fourth, Louis the Thirteenth, the Fourteenth, the Fifteenth, and the Sixteenth, and he doesn't just stop there because in May 1805 he crowns himself King of Italy in the Duomo in Milan, this uh, extraordinary cathedral. It's a wonderful example of big headedness, particularly because the title King of Italy had actually lain dormant since the abdication of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in 1556. That's 249 years before Napoleon um from his modest corsican roots decided he was going to make himself king of italy and uh, he didn't really stop there at all anyway napoleon's an absolutely smashing example of big-headedness and if you wanted to um uh, explore it a bit just do focus on him crowning himself king of italy um in 1805 it's fascinating
1: excellent or you could look at louis the 14th the sun king who was he's king... great
2: he's mad brilliant
1: <laughs> king of france from actually quite young um, I think he was about five, five or six when he ascended the throne, five. Um, he ascended the throne in 1643 and ruled until his death in 1715. He's famous for um, inhabiting that wonderful palace, Versailles, which was sort of populated full of of, of courtiers and, and perfumed up to the rafters. Um, and again, is a man who has self-belief. You know, he believes uh, in, you know, the divine right of kings. And I think that's something behind this sort of this, this big-headedness. So we call it big-headedness, which in a way is slightly flippant because it isn't quite sort of getting to grips with the sort of seriousness of some of these, these rulers. But I think one of the things that is common to a lot of these rulers is that they are, they're at the pinnacle of power. So they're right at the top. And I think one of the things that's really interesting in exploring as a historian, looking at political regimes, is the way in which a figurehead like that and their personality then intersects with the sort of political figures that are underneath them, that are either at court or that are their leading ministers, and how in that sort of melee of sort of political power and ambition how you make policy how you go to war how you decide what is going to be done and there the act of a big head to be somebody who champions things who actually has the confidence to show things through and has a vision of things i think is 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 really interesting and i think with each of these different rulers that we're talking about it's whether it's whether they are people who are visionaries themselves or whether they are leaders who have talented ministers behind them who were able mm, I, to do things for them.
2: Um, I love that idea and particularly when you mention the divine right of kings. Um so I've got a couple of ideas here we, we've just talked about Napoleon making himself king of Italy. That's really important because it links to the divine right of kings the belief that he has this um, this, this right to rule he is a position anointed by god essentially. And um the same with Louis the 14th but there are two cracking examples of people who were deliberately not royal and of course you've got Cromwell during the uh, English Civil War, so Charles I has been executed. Cromwell comes into power. Um, they need to have someone in charge. Essentially, he becomes Lord Protector uh, and ends up leading what is essentially a military dictatorship. And um, he—he's another fascinating example um, when you can apply a certain level of big-headedness to, particularly in his military career. And a similar one is Robespierre from the French Revolution. So. Uh, the French King Louis is being executed, and then Robespierre, just as during the Reign of Terror, he's a politician, he's a minister, he he fights his own way to power. So those are two other cracking examples uh, for people who aren't actually monarchs.
1: Yes, and then there's then there's the sort of cultural history of big headedness. So there's the cultural history of arrogance and what it is to be arrogant and how that manifests itself and how people are seen to be arrogant, whether it is a whether it's a vice role or, or whether it's a virtue, whether people missee arrogance as simply self-confidence, you know, and w- you know, you think about the Brits, um, you think about our, the country in which we both live, and people don't like arrogance, you know, they don't, or they don't like confidence. They see it as arrogance. Whereas in other cultures, particularly in in America, that kind of self-confidence and putting yourself forward is something that is to be very much celebrated. Yeah, So there and are I, huge cultural differences there.
2: I like the idea of thinking about how it kind of manifests itself over time as well. If you think about the terracotta army, something like that, that's the, the you know, the mausoleum and the, the buried armies of the first Qin emperor, the first emperor to unite China. And there are all sorts of other examples of how people have um, wanted to maintain their reputation even after their death. And that's another good way of looking at it as well. But, but let's stop chatting about all sorts of different other fascinating examples because we're going to be talking about Henry VIII. That is the main plan. And um, I, I love talking to James about Henry VIII because your favourite phrase for Henry VIII is an egotistical maniac, <laughs> which I love.
1: He's a man who's, who's very difficult to fathom. I'll tell you a lot more about that in, in a moment.
2: He is. Um, but we're going to start with a report. This describes Henry VIII. It was written in 1509 and it was uh, it was written by the Venetian ambassador. After dinner, we were taken to the king who embraced us without ceremony and conversed for a very long while, very familiarly on various topics in good Latin and in French, which he speaks very well indeed, and he then dismissed us, and we were brought back here to London. His Majesty is the handsomest potentate I have yet set eyes on, above the usual height, with an extremely fine calf to his leg, his complexion very fair and bright, with auburn hair combed straight and short in the French fashion, his throat being rather long and thick. He was born on the 28th of June, 1491, so he will enter his 25th year the month after next. He speaks French, English and Latin, and a little Italian, plays well on the lute and harpsichord, sings from book at sight, draws the bow with great strength than any man in England, and jousts marvellously. Believe me, he is in every respect a most accomplished prince, and I who have now seen all the sovereigns in Christendom, And last of all, these two of France and England in such great state might well rest content. And later that year, his majesty came into our arbour and, addressing me in French, said, talk with me a while. The king of France, is he as tall as I am? I told him there was but little difference. He continued, is he as stout? I said he was not. And he then inquired, what sort of legs has he? I replied, spare Whereupon he opened the front of his doublet and placing his hand on his thigh said look here and I have also a good calf to my leg. He then told me that he was very fond of this king of France and that for the sake of seeing him he went over there in person and that on more than three occasions he was very near him with his army but that he never would allow himself to be seen and always retreated which his majesty attributed to deference for King Louis, who did not choose an engagement to take place. And he here commenced discussing in detail all the events of that war and then took his departure. After dinner, his majesty and many others armed themselves with cap api and he chose us to see him joust, running upwards of 30 courses in one of which he capsized his opponent, who is the finest jouster in the whole kingdom, horse and all, He then took off his helmet and came under the windows where we were and talked and laughed with us to our very great honour and to the surprise of all beholders. What a wonderful description of Henry. He's like a vision in front of my eyes, James.
1: (laughs) He certainly is. He certainly is. And I think what's fascinating about this is that you see the confidence and the arrogance, the big-headedness of Henry there, you know, wanting to prove himself against the French king. And what's interesting is the way in which if you look at the Tudor court of this period, it is styled on exactly the structures that you have at the at the French court. Um, So he's borrowing all sorts of traditions uh, from the French, but at the heart of it, you know, there's this sense in which Henry is putting himself forward as the strongest, most elegant king that there is wanting to prove himself to be the best and the Venetian ambassador here I think it's really interesting because what he's doing is he's not only describing Henry so you have this sort of almost sort of biographical description of him when he's born all those kinds of things you've got his education but also you're getting at this sort of this personal personal side of Henry so this leads us on to what we want to talk about which is I want to talk about the nature of Henry VIII and his reign. And one of the really interesting things when you're thinking about Henry VIII is to think about his personality. What kind of man do you think Henry VIII was? What motivated him? And as we were saying earlier on, what's very interesting, whenever you're thinking about a political system and you have at the top the monarch, you've then got to think about what the actual political regime was like. So who controlled policy during this period? And also, you've got to remember one of the remarkable things about the reign of Henry VIII is the savagery of politics during this period. This is the time of the Reformation, 1533, it's the split from Rome. He, Henry VIII has six wives... Two of them who are executed, and Sam's going to tell us more about that later on. But ultimately, this man is an enigma. He's really hard to get at because he's tempestuous in his loves and his desires. He is very, very close to his officials, you know, the men who are his officials in government, people like Cardinal Woolsey, who oversaw the first half of the reign and failed to secure a divorce from the Pope. And this was a man who worked very closely with Henry, yet Henry destroyed him. He was followed by Thomas Cromwell, who masterminded what was happening throughout the 1530s, worked very closely with Henry VIII, but yet in 1540 was destroyed. And how do we explain that savagery of politics? Now, there are various views about the nature of henry the personality now on the one hand you could see him as a as an egotistical maniac as, as sam was talking about earlier on you could see him as a sort of psycho killer king who basically destroys those who are very close to him and that's something that you can't forget just look at all the people who he has executed you know thomas More, his chancellor. Um, Woolsey dies in prison, you know, before he's he's executed. Cromwell is executed on trumped up charges. Um, Anne Boleyn, who he is obsessed with, you know, what is infatuated with, you know, three years after their marriage, she's executed. Um, so we have that sort of psycho killer view. And then there's the idea that actually Henry is a weak ruler. So Henry is actually manipulated by factions. In other words, these are groupings of individuals who come together about certain issues that can be about ideology or about policy, and they vie with each other for Henry's attention. And rather than Henry being this strong psycho killer king, he's in fact a weak king who is dominated by these people. So there are two different different, uh, views of him. I think in reality... Reality is probably it's something in the middle. Henry is somebody who is, who who whose temperament is to be arrogant. Um, He he has infatuations. He's hot tempered, um, but at the same time, he is able to. He's able to lead and he's able to take advice from people. I don't see him as somebody who is manipulated. And in reality, it's actually very difficult to know what went on, you know, day to day, because this is a very face-to-face society. And the kinds of documents that you might use to study, say, for example, Hitler's Germany, where you're able to get at the decision-making and the interpersonal relationships, and you've got lots of ego or autobiographical documents, simply don't survive for this. So you need to think when you're thinking about Henry VIII, what kind of man he was, what motivated him and what was the nature of his personality. Um, so I think that, um, I think in terms of how we look at this, it's interesting to think about the different government ministers that he had. Now, if we start with Thomas Wolsey, Thomas Wolsey is one of the Men who is dominant throughout the first half of Henry VIII's reign. Um, he's born in 1475, lives to 1530. He's a very, very powerful man. Henry is, sees him to some extent as a rival to him when he comes to the throne. Um, Henry, is, What's interesting about Henry is that he's not educated to be king. His brother Arthur was supposed to be the one on the throne, and Henry was off in Wales being brought up uh, by a household of women. So he wasn't actually intended to be the next king of England, and I think that's very important. When Wolsey comes in, Henry is slightly jealous of certain things. He's jealous of his spiritual powers that he has in the church. He's a he's a he's a, a cardinal legate. Um, so he has power with Rome, and also he has temporal powers, in other words, powers of state that are invested in his person. He's also somebody who, you know, is himself very sort of vainglorious, so he's somebody who likes pomp and ceremony. He builds lavish residences at Hampton Court and York Palace. He has over 400 of his own courtiers and servants, Uh, and this is something that the aristocracy don't necessarily like and also Henry doesn't like because he sees him as somebody who's very much a rival for him. So the king needs to assert himself and so what he does is he takes Hampton Court for himself and he also takes Christ Church College Oxford which was founded by Cardinal Wolsey and was initially Cardinal College. The interesting thing though when you're thinking about Wolsey and, and Henry VIII is that Henry VIII is a very different man when he's in his youth. This is a man who starts off, he's very interested in hunting and jousting and entertainment. He's not interested in paperwork and bureaucracy like his father was. Henry VII was very sort of serious and and serious-minded about government and administration. Henry isn't interested in that. And so this allows... Wolsey a lot of room to work, you know, and there are, there are anecdotes about him bringing along toys to occupy the king and interesting him while he gets the king to sign off all sorts of documents and paperwork. There are... I mean, I think you could say that Henry is more or less allergic to paperwork, although there are three things that he's really interested in. Foreign policy, marriage and religion. And foreign policy, he's interested in war. And if you have a look at the state papers, his handwriting is all over these documents. He sees himself very much uh, wanting to go to war in a in a very personal way. A marriage and divorce for him, divorcing Catherine of Aragon because she didn't give him a son, is 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 incredibly important. However, what he does is he decides what he wants to do, and then he allows Wolsey to do it. So Wolsey, you know, sets himself up with a war with France he goes off and tries to negotiate a divorce with the Pope for Henry VIII, and then what brings him down is actually his inability to do that. Now, it's very different when you think about Thomas Cromwell. Now, Thomas Cromwell comes into power in the 1530s after the fall of Anne Boleyn, or just before the fall of Anne Boleyn, and this is a man who has... You know, who's grown up in the Berlin household and then is a turncoat and basically turns against Anne Boleyn and is part of the people who bring her down. And this is somebody who doesn't have the grandeur of Wolsey and doesn't have the sort of, I think he has the self belief, but he doesn't have the grandeur and able to operate with Henry VIII as almost an equal. In other words, he's very much—he's not a sort of friend with Henry VIII, but he's very much a servant. And I think one of the things that he does is he changes the bureaucratic nature of the Tudor state. And I think you can see him doing this throughout the 1530s. And he introduces all sorts of reforms. The Court of Wards, for example, is brought in to oversee... The crown's feudal income. Wardship is basically those children who are uh, their father he holds land from the crown by knight service, um, which we looked at when we looked at feudalism. Um, when, they di- when the father died, the child became, when they were under the age of 21 for boys, 14 for girls, they became the property of the crown and could be sold off. Cromwell you know, enables the crown to extract a lot more money out of that. Um, And he does all sorts of things like that. He's also responsible for the dissolution of the monasteries. And this is one of the really interesting case studies about thinking about how he and Henry VIII work. They both share this idea that they want to dispense with with the monasteries. They want to dissolve them. For Henry, it's very much practicality. Henry is convinced that he need, that they, they have a lot of wealth and that he wants that wealth in the crown coffers. Whereas for Thomas Cromwell, who's an evangelical, in other words, he's a really serious-minded reformist. He sees the monasteries as innately corrupt and part of the Catholic Church and their corruption and wants to remove them from that. The two of them are on the same page in terms of what aims they want, the dissolution of the monasteries. But they come at it from completely different ends of the spectrum. With Cromwell, it's ideological. With Henry VIII, it's money. And what Cromwell does, he's a master fixer, what Cromwell does is he puts in place a bureaucratic system that dismantles the the monasteries. And first of all, he sets up a propaganda campaign to demonize the monasteries, to show the corruption, to show the fact that, that monks aren't chaste, that they have mistresses and all sorts of other things. And then he sets in train a bureaucratic system to systematically go to these places, to suppress them and to take out all of their wealth. And so you've got two very different sort of very different um, chief ministers there. And I think what's interesting when you're studying Henry VIII is to think in each of these cases how policy is made. And I think we can see it in both cases to a certain extent that Henry is a, an arrogant, confident man who wants certain things done and leads. And then he has two able ministers who do for him what he wants. And in both cases, these men fall from power. Now, part of that is also to be explained by the various court factions that are jockeying for power at the time. But it is worth thinking, what is it that makes this such a savage period of Tudor politics? And it is, it's explained by two things. One is it's explained by the religious differences. And there are big ideological differences between those who are reformists, so they want change in the church, and those who are more conservative or more Catholic in their outlook. And that becomes something that brings people down and can be used against people. The other thing is, there's also a lot of wealth at stake. As soon as you dissolve the monasteries, Everyone wants a piece of that kind of wealth. So there's a lot of infighting around it and a lot of sort of, you know, backbiting and viciousness. And I think we can also see that sort of factionalism and that viciousness played out through Henry's six wives, which I think Sam is going to talk about now.
2: I absolutely am. Yes. Um, And I think... What you need to understand with the six wives, just quickly, it's Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleese, Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr is the variety of them. There's no one way of explaining what happened that you can use for all of the wives. So it's all it's all very different. First up, we have Catherine of Aragon. She's a Spanish princess. She's initially married to Henry VIII's um, elder brother, Arthur, who's um, also the, the son of Henry VII. And the marriage ends there because there's a divorce which is granted um, primarily because she's not able to provide Henry with the male heir that he wants. And Henry's also become attracted to Anne Boleyn, who is a lady in waiting. Uh, And So Henry moves on to wife number two, who is Anne Boleyn. She is uh, beheaded. She dies in 1536 and they've been married for um, just three years. And she was probably beheaded for not producing a son and heir to the throne. But historians have also argued that one of the most likely reasons was her affairs that she had. And she also considered herself more important, perhaps, than she actually was. And that irritated a lot of um, those who were working around Henry. She was succeeded by Jane Seymour. She was the mother of Henry's son Edward who becomes the future king Edward VI when Henry dies. Um, poor Ardain dies just 12 days after giving birth to Edward and Henry seems to have been genuinely fond of her and he mourned her death. She was replaced by wife number four Anne of Cleves who was a German princess. She was chosen for Henry by Thomas Cromwell from a painting by an artist called Holbein but Henry has said um, that she looked like a horse when he actually met her. So there's um, a, a significant belief that she did not look like um, the woman who is in the painting. Uh, Catherine Howard was wife number five. Henry married her as a result of an ambitious move by. Uh, The Catholic Duke of Norfolk, and her marriage ended when the Protestant enemies of the Howards accused Catherine of adultery. So she is beheaded, like unfortunate wife number two, who was Anne Boleyn. So the two who were beheaded is Catherine Howard, number five, and Anne, number two, and the last one was Catherine Parr. Um, She'd already been widowed twice when she married Henry in 1543. She was a very skilful person. She managed Henry in his declining years very well and looked after his children and brought the family together. And she married again after Henry's death. But unfortunately, she died in childbirth. But she's the only one to have actually survived Henry. So there we go. Those are Henry's six wives. Really important part to understanding the man. And you could very much trace the politics of the Tudor period, if you um, look at the history of his relationship with his wives. Um, time for a quiz, James, I think.
1: Yes, absolutely. Now, um,
2: which... I'm going to start, actually, okay, if I may. excellent. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Who, who wrote the account of Henry VIII that I started this off by reading out? So who wrote that account of Henry VIII?
1: Number two, in what year did Henry VIII ascend to the throne? Number three, what was the name of Henry's elder brother who died? Number four, in what year did England split from Rome? Number five, can you name Henry VIII's six wives? And you get a bonus point for saying how they died. And last but not least, who were Henry VIII's two main advisers? Now, we hope very much you'll be able to answer these questions.
2: If not, you'll have to go back and listen again. But we promise that all of the answers are very much in the podcast. Now, James, have we got a takeaway task
1: for everyone? Yes, we do, Sam. We do. Now, what we want you to do is to make a Tudor family tree. So we want you to put Henry VIII's father at the top and his wife and then the children underneath. And then we want you to follow out from Henry VIII and map out... His six wives, and then each of the children who become monarchs of England. So that's Edward VI, Mary the First, and um Elizabeth I. And if you're if you're if you're really daring, also try and get Lady Jane Grey in there somehow, who's sort of related in some way. But this is a fascinating way to understand the Tudor dynasty. Family trees like this are really good for looking at all the links because behind know, behind thinking about how politics works, these real life relationships are really telling. To know who knows who, who's sleeping with who, who's married to who, all of that kind of thing is super important.
2: Absolutely is. These are real people living real lives. Never forget that. Hope you enjoyed today and do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. Find us on social media and get in touch with all of your ideas. We want to hear from every single one of you. Thanks very much indeed, guys, for listening. We'll be back soon.
1: Bye. Bye, guys.